going to continue with a second part to this morning's message. The sermon has a title, God Manifested in the Flesh. That comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I read the portions of the confession that use those words, person, nature, union, united, um, and then try to explain those, giving you that kind of silly illustration about Joe out there punching a hole in the uh, window, to distinguish between Joe, the agent, and the agency by which Joe broke the window, his human nature. And then we kind of tried to apply that to our Lord a bit, and then start going to texts. We went to John 1, 1 through 3, John 1, 14, went to John 8. And there in John 8, Jesus identifies himself with the I am of the Old Testament. Okay? Before Abraham was, I am. Now, I want to show you that the I am is Yahweh. I want to show you now that there are at least three Jesus as Yahweh texts in the New Testament. And guess who does that? Not our Lord who identifies Yahweh with Jesus, but Mark and Paul, at least in two places. Now let's think about that. Okay, Our Lord identifies himself as Yahweh during his earthly ministry. We have the red letters in our gospel accounts, if we have the red letter edition. Uh, before Abraham was, I am, that's red letter. He spoke that before John wrote it, Right? So the words and deeds of Christ predate the written words and deeds of Christ, right? The writers wrote after the fact. So he's speaking these words. Uh, uh, Before Abraham was, I am. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you say, "Uh uh-oh, the I am is Elohim, Yahweh. This is a claim of divinity. He is the I am, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. But he didn't become that because God doesn't become. So now we have Mark after the ascension. We have Paul after the ascension, after Pentecost. And what they're doing is they're saying things about Jesus. And then they're going, oh, by the way, it's exactly what the Old Testament says. And what they do is they go back to Yahweh texts. How many Yahwehs are there? One, the Lord our God is one, okay? They go back to Yahweh texts, and then they tack it on to what they're saying about Jesus. So what, what are they doing? They're doing what Jesus did. They're just using different texts than Jesus did. Jesus used the I am of Exodus 3.14, predicating it of himself according to his divine nature, And so the writers of the New Testament are following in the footsteps of the verbal ministry of our Lord while he was on the earth in describing who he is and connecting his identity with the one I am of the Old Testament. So if you have a a, a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 
By the way, should it surprise us that the writers of the New Testament are making similar moves in describing Jesus in relation to the Old Testament? Should it surprise us that they're doing basically what our Lord did, even though they might use different texts, or even though they might use different names for God? I am, Jesus used, Yahweh, Lord, here. By the way, do the New Testament writers ever use the word, the Greek word theos, God, and predicate it of Jesus? Are there any Jesus' God texts in the New Testaments? Okay. Yeah, we're going, well, yeah, there is. There's actually several places. But this is a Yahweh text. Here we have Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, this is the New King James Version. I think some of the versions say, as Isaiah said. But Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the L-O-R-D, all capitalized. So that's telling us that in the Hebrew text, it's the divine name, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. But it also tells us something else. It tells us, uh, by, ver- by way of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, so-called translated by 70 translators, uh, it also tells us that they translated Yahweh Kurios, right? Am I right there, Doc? I'm right. Kurios, Jesus is Kurios, Lord. So here we have, prepare the way of of Yahweh, make his paths straight, make his paths straight. Now, uh, the first part there in verse uh, 1, excuse me, at verse 2, is a reference to Malachi 3.1. You can read it later if you want. And then the next verse, verse 3, is a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. One man says, Malachi 3.1, um, and it's appeal to an eschatological a future messenger, and the preparation of Yahweh's way echoes key ideas in Isaiah 40, verse 3. So Malachi 3.1 is actually an echo of Isaiah. Malachi was reading Isaiah, and Malachi wants to say something similar that Isaiah does. Both of them are speaking about a time in the future. That's why he says an eschatological messenger. Somebody in the future is going to have their way prepared for them by somebody else, and this somebody else ends up being, I almost said Juan the Baptist, but yeah, Juan the Baptist, and speaks Spanish too, by the way. Um, John the Baptist is preparing the way for who? Yahweh. Who is the Yahweh that he prepares the way for? Jesus. So this is one of those... Yahweh text. Turn over to Romans 10. Here's another one. Now this is Paul, so we had Mark. Now we have Paul. Romans 10, 9 through 13. Listen, you, this is, you know, we all know these, this language here because that if you confess with your mouth 
the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Destroy this temple and in three days God will raise it up. Oops, I mean, I will raise it up. That was on purpose. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the one Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For, quote, whoever calls on the name of the, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, shall be, shall be saved. So that, okay, so now we know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is Old Testament Yahweh. I didn't do that on purpose. Greek translation of the Old Testament, kurios. Verse 13 cites Joel 2.32. That's Joel 2.32. A Yahweh text attributing the divine name to who? Jesus. Paul's not the only one that does it. If you go read Acts 2, sermon uh, the Pentecostal, post-Pentecostal sermon by Peter, he cites Joel 2.20. Uh, Joel 2.32 Joel 2, in Acts 2.21 and uses it like Paul does, Christologically. That Yahweh back there is this Jesus right here. Here's another text, another Yahweh text. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. We read there. Therefore, God also... Highly exalted him. God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth. Uh, It's not, I think sometimes people read it this way. That at the very name Jesus, that's what I'm talking about. That's the name. No, he says, the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name isn't Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name's actually YHWH. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. There's a reason why I'm saying it this way. You'll see it. Because... Most of you have read it in the Old Testament. Of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name which is above every name probably echoes various psalms where the name of the Lord, Yahweh, is identified as excellent, blessed, and to be praised. The Lord is the object. Yahweh is the object of worship. The title Lord in verse 11, refers to Jesus. And this comes on the heels of verse 10. Verse 10 is very important. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth. 
Do you hear Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23? If you don't, you should, or you are now. That's an echo of Isaiah 45, 23. Isaiah 45, 23 is informing Paul's language here. Where we read that to me, every knee shall bow. This is Isaiah 45, 23. Every tongue shall take an oath. And the me in Isaiah context is clearly Yahweh. The God of Israel, 45.3. Isaiah 45.21 reads, There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. See, Paul's borrowing concepts from that passage, and he's interpreting the exaltation of our Lord in light of the extant Old Testament scriptures. He's doing it like Jesus did. Jesus got himself right in relation to the Old Testament. Paul gets Jesus right in relation to the Old Testament. Paul does a similar thing Jesus did with himself in terms of his self-identity in relation to the Old Testament. He uses a divine name of God, I am, and he predicates it of himself. Paul's doing the same thing with a different passage, talking about the same Lord, though. Verse 22 in Isaiah 45 says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. An interesting point to consider here is the fact that upon the resurrection, Jesus is identified with the name of Yahweh. Okay, this is exaltation language. Suffering's glory. Upon the resurrection, he's being Identified as Yahweh. Now, if he was Yahweh, upon his exaltation, he was always Yahweh, because Yahweh is the one from everlasting to everlasting God, the I Am. He didn't become Yahweh at his exaltation. Yahweh doesn't become Yahweh is. Here's a, I think this man's a Lutheran, but listen to what he says here about this text. It must be confessed that Jesus is not other than Yahweh. The relationship between Yahweh and Jesus, which the church hymns, sings, in her worship, must always have been intrinsic to Yahweh's identity. If relationship to Jesus of Nazareth is intrinsic to the identity of Yahweh, if Jesus is not other than Yahweh, in the sense of Isaiah 45, how many Yahwehs in Isaiah 45? One. How many saviors? According to Isaiah 45, one. Then it is impossible to fix any moment as the moment when that relationship began. There's no time when we say, okay, Jesus can now be identified as Yahweh. The I am is Yahweh Elohim. For that moment would then be the moment when the creature Jesus became divine. If there was a when, he was not. There was a time when he was not? Well, according to his human nature, right? But not according to his divinity. 
There was a time when he was not. That's Arianism, Patrick. (laughs) Or if any moment can be identified as the beginning of his relationship with Yahweh, he was adopted into this new relationship. That's adoptionism, Patrick. Then his association with Yahweh would amount to the enthronement of a second God alongside the God of Israel. See what he's saying there? He goes, don't look at Ephesians 2, 9 through 11 and say, oh, he has become something he was not, Yahweh. No, we can say he has become something he is not. He has become resurrected and glorified according to the only nature that can be resurrected and glorified. And he is Yahweh. The I am from everlasting to everlasting God. So those are just three Yahweh texts. There are three Jesus' God texts. There are more than three Jesus' God texts in the New Testament. But here's three really quick. Yes, it's really quick. I'm going to point out to you now. You can turn to Romans 9.5. I will now point out three Jesus as God, Theos, texts to show that as the Lord identified himself with the I am of the Old Testament and the apostles identified their Lord with Yahweh of the Old Testament, the apostles also had no problem identifying their Savior as God. Remember the Isaiah text and there's many others. How many saviors are there? One. How many Yahwehs are there? One. How many Elo? Be careful on this one. How many Elohims are there? There's actually only one, but the term Elohim is used sometimes of, of authoritative figures in the Old Testament. John 10 sermons, if you want to go back there. So they're doing the same thing the Lord's doing here, and now they're calling the one Savior, God, I need to stop doing that, sorry, brother, who is Christ Jesus. Romans 9.5 reads, Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, from the fathers, the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, according to the flesh, Christ came, okay, so that's an acknowledgement of his humanity, who is overall the eternally blessed God, amen, an acknowledgement of his divinity. The one who came according to the flesh is also simultaneously the eternally blessed God. Here's another text, Titus 2.13. It reads this way, looking for... The blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've read that verse before, right? There's another one that sounds like it. Second Peter 1.1 1, 1, reads this way. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now those two texts, Titus 2.13 and Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, have a lot of similarities in the original languages. Um, God and Savior, and then Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is 
what they call an appositional phrase. Basically, we can read it this way. God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. And this uh, interesting construction, God and Savior. And over here, if we were doing Greek, we could diagram it. We'll see a little Greek article, usually translated the. Okay? Now, when it's this way, there are two nouns separated by an and with only one article. The first noun and the second noun are the same person. The God and the Savior, who is Jesus Christ. So both verses are exactly alike in that sense. So we should understand both verses this way. Our God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. So Jesus, a man of Nazareth, whose doings are recorded for us in the Gospels, heaven's especially anointed servant, Christ, as promised in the Old Testament, is both God and Savior. Now, applying the term Savior to our Lord is rooted in Old Testament Yahweh texts claiming, guess what? Lord or Saviorhood as an exclusive Yahwistic claim. Is that a new word, Yahwistic? You, if you've read the prophets enough, you know that well, God says, look, there's no other gods, there's no other lords, there's no other saviors. The apostles, this side of the exaltation of Christ, in the footsteps of their Lord, is using Old Testament Yahweh, now savior language, and predicating these titles, attributing these titles, to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 43, 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Hosea 13, 4, echoing Isaiah. Some of the minor prophets echo the major prophets, the ones that were written before them, which teaches us the prophets read the prophets. If prophets were trying to figure out the prophets while the prophets were something, while they were writing the prophetic, it, it's interesting. Anyway, for there is no Savior besides me. Listen, in 1 Timothy, Paul identifies God as Savior three times. Usually in Paul, when God, Theos is used all by itself, it's usually indicating the Father. In 1 Timothy, Paul identifies God as Savior three times. Paul also calls Jesus the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5.23. The Savior from whom we eagerly, for whom we eagerly wait. Philippians 3.20, the Savior who appeared, 2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior and our great God and Savior. See what's happening there? The Father is called the Savior, the Son is called the Savior. The Old Testament saying, one Savior. We can go to other texts where the Father is called the Lord, the Son is called the Lord, and the Old Testament's telling us, one Yahweh. Uh, we can actually go to 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's not in the notes. You know, we were going from one glory to another. And then 
I need to grab the text since I introduced it, because if I don't, somebody's going to get mad at me, and it's the Lord's Day, and I don't want to provoke you to get madder than you should be. Now watch this text. For we all, this is 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face beholding is in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, that's New King James. If you look at the marginal note, it says, uh, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, comma, the Spirit. Some of you know that Greek can be translated that way, and I think that's the best way. What's happening there, if I'm reading it right? The Spirit is the Lord. Well, you have the Father is Lord text, you have the Son is Lord text, and now, if we take it that way, you have a Spirit is Lord text. What's going on here? Three lords? Uh, three gods? Three Yahwehs? Three Almighties? Remember the Athanasian Creed? Not three Almighties, but one. Not three lords, but one. What are the names of this thing called Lord? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one thing. That each person simultaneously exists in and among each other. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. The perichoresis. Um, just, I mean, we're getting into deep weeds here, but... We've got to read the New Testament, and we see they're following Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I am. The apostles use Yahweh texts from the Old Testament to say, hey, that's him. They use theos language, God. They use kurios language, Yahweh. And here it looks like the Spirit is the Lord, is Yahweh. Peter does it too. Peter calls Jesus our God and Savior, our Lord and Savior, the Lord and Savior. So we could say this, our Lord Jesus is the God and Savior, first revealed in the Old Testament, and the Lord. First revealed uh, in the Old Testament as the covenant God of ancient Israel, also the I Am revealing himself to Moses by that new name. Is everybody sufficiently ready to have me be quiet now? This is like Christology 101 fire hose. (laughs) Open your mouth. I'm going to shove it full of stuff. It'll be good for you. You know, that kind of thing. I, I hope that's not happening. Um, I could have gone slower, I had more material, but hopefully you got enough, and you've read your Bible enough that you're going, all right, okay, these are good tools, good interpretive guardrails to help us not fall off into the ditch of heresy on the one hand and the ditch of heresy on, on, on another side, okay? The, the, the rail to walk on is, or the path to walk on is pretty narrow, uh, so we need some guardrails to, to, to keep us in. And I think one of those guardrails is, I think I mentioned it the first, 
uh, hour is the fact that the Son of God incarnate existed even beyond the flesh during his incarnate state here and still does. And lo, I am with you always. But Jesus, you're leaving the earth when you said that. That's Matthew 28, 20. How can you, we saw you ascend. Read Acts 1. We saw it. We saw the ascension. He went up in a cloud, the same in body. And you, you said you'll come back in the same body. How can you say, and lo, I am with you always? The Son of God incarnate can say that while on the earth about the future because he's God and man in one person, uniquely united within that one person are these two natures, and he acts simultaneously by both of them, but both do only that which is proper to itself. The divine nature doesn't do that which is proper to the human nature. The human nature does not do that which is proper proper to the divine nature. So when Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, it has to be with reference to his divine nature. So that when we sing, it's a great hymn, that preaching hymn, number 220, we are gathered to hear thee. You know what? You know what the referent to thee is? What it points back to? Jesus. How can we sing that? Here it is, 2.20. Blessed Jesus, at thy word, we are gathered all to hear thee. Okay? The Lord, according to his human nature, wherever heaven is, that's where he is. Circumscribed, okay, bounded in its existence to its human form. But here we're singing, we want Jesus to preach sermons to us? Like, you guys really think Jesus is going to, before his second coming, is going to come to your church? And preach a sermon to you and get to see him and touch him and feel him? No. But we believe that Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who's at the right hand of the Father, uses human instruments through which the voice of the Son of God is communicated to sinners. My sheep. Hear my voice. That's still true, you know that? But you don't hear an audible human voice. You have this internal effectual call that comes to you, internal effectual illumination that happens to you. You see your sin for what it is, you see Christ for who he is, and foul, you fly to the fountain fly, and the Savior washes you so you don't die in your sins. We can sing that because we have a two-natured Redeemer. And when we get our Christology a little tighter every Lord's Day, hopefully, and over time, we see th- things like that in the hymn, and it doesn't, doesn't trip us up. We go, I know how that can be true. And so next time we sing seven, whatever it is, and that thou, my, my God, shouldst die for me, you can say to yourself, I know what's going on there. Mr. Wesley held to the extra-Calvinisticum. 
He believed in the one person, two nature redeemer. He believed that the Son of God existed and does now, even beyond the flesh. That flesh can die. And it was the flesh of God that died. But it was not flesh that died by virtue of the divine nature. It was flesh that died by virtue of itself. Because it is proper for flesh to die, but not for divinity to die. Well, may this be helpful. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we swim in the deep waters of the great mystery of God being manifested in the flesh. We, we need a lot of help. We're not always clear-headed about these things, and sometimes even when we are, we aren't clear in our speech. I know that's been true of me. I don't want it to be true in the future. I want to get better at this. Help, help me. Help all of us and enrich our hymn singing in light of these things. There are many hymns we can just sit down and read, and, and everything I've been saying today is clearly assumed to be true in these hymns. We thank you for such rich hymnody. We pray that our singing would form us, would make us uh, tighter on our um, doctrine and more grateful in our praises. We don't just want to be filled with all the right things. We want to be filled with the right things but we want to show forth our gratitude. So may this not just be a cranium-stuffing exercise, but a soul-amazing, soul-enhancing exercise that fuels our praise and our living for you Monday through Saturday. We ask for your blessings on these things in Jesus' name. Amen.